G'day and welcome to Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler and this week all eyes were on Helsinki and the jungles of northern Thailand. So not much action elsewhere. But in some ways the most interesting thing is the way markets have held up under the weight of trade war threats. So far it's all insouciance. So we'll look into that with market strategist Evan Lucas and economist at AMP Capital Diana Musina, as well as yesterday's jobs data for June with Callum Pickering of Indeed.com. And on politics, I'm pleased to be talking to one of Australia's best political commentators, at least I think he is, Peter Van Onselen. But let's kick off with jobs and Callum Pickering. Uh, so, Callum, the last time I spoke to you, we talked about how jobs growth this year had fallen off from last year's stellar numbers. Um, but uh, we've got the latest month is 50,900 new jobs. Are we, can we say that it's back now? We're back to strong growth again? Uh, well, certainly the June outcome was uh, much stronger than we've seen over the course of 2018. Um, but if we... But nevertheless, if you look at um, average growth over 2018 thus far, it is still a fair bit below where it was uh, last year. Last year, we averaged almost 34,000 jobs a month. This year, we're closer to uh, 21,000. Nevertheless, if we were to replicate uh, what we've seen in the first half of the year over the second half of 2018, then we'd still have a a pretty solid year for the Australian labour market. Yeah, right. And um, I note that actually the, the unemployment rate is 5.37. Obviously, they rounded up to 5.4, but at 5.37, seasonally adjusted, it is the lowest unemployment rate in five or so years, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. We're uh, gradually drifting downwards. Uh, 5.37 is, is certainly much better than we've been for some time. I think it you have to go back to, it might be late 2012 uh, since we've last been down at that level. Um, nevertheless, labour market slack in Australia is still pretty high. Um, increasingly, economists look at measures uh, a lot broader than the unemployment rate. Uh, we look at the number of people who are underemployed as well, people who are looking for more hours. And if you look at those measures in tandem, you come to the conclusion that there still is a high level of labour market slack in Australia. There's still a lot of people out there um, either looking for work or looking for, for more hours. So there's still much progress to be made. Uh, Were there any uh, details in the release that caught your eye? Uh, Well, the really pleasing uh, result from my perspective is that 80% of the increase in employment this month was driven by full-time employment. And that's important because um, certainly throughout 2018 thus far, we hadn't seen much full-time employment. Um, Last year, full-time employment accounted for around three-quarters of employment growth. Uh, This year, it's about one-third. So that's a big... um, decline from from last year. But certainly June was very different, much stronger result. Hopefully that uh, maintains over the second half of the year. And now I'm joined by Evan Lucas to talk about the markets. Evan is the Chief Market Strategist at InvestSmart. Uh, well, Evan, the uh, market's holding up pretty well in all the uh, uncertainty about trade wars. Um, the, and looking at year-to-date, the, the uh, ASX 200 and the uh, MSCI Global Index are up about the same, or you know, 2 to 3% each. So it's just mm-hmm. interesting um, that so far, so good on the markets front. 
Yeah, and it is interesting because it's, it's this buffer, isn't it, that, that you wouldn't normally expect, considering that our largest trading partner is, is in a bear market, as you're alluding to, with regards to what's happening in Shanghai and also on the Shenzhen Composites. They're, they're under a lot of pressure. You've seen you know, one of our major exports in terms of commodities, being copper in the last sort of six to eight weeks, fall as much as 15%. Normally, you would expect that to, to come through, as you alluded to, on the market. You've probably seen it to some extent in the currency, but... Uh, the market has been resilient. It's interesting what's probably added points, particularly over the period we're talking about. It, it is the banks. Now, I'm not saying they're back to where they were, but they're, they're actually pretty much neutral now. So they've put some points back in for the points they took out in, in sort of in March. And, and that's what it expects. So the Banking Royal Commission has certainly been an impact there. The issues around funding and possibilities of, of future changes that the banks could do around their, their interest rates in the coming months has certainly been a factor, but in the main, we've we remained quite resilient, and, and we haven't been anywhere near the level of volatility that we've seen in Europe, or even looking at, at our, you know, the U.S. markets as well have been quite choppy considering what's been going on. So, it's interesting we have been insulated. It's a question of whether or not over the, the coming years we can do that. But um, so far, so good. It's not just the banks. Um, the the miners are holding up pretty well as well, even though, they, as you say, yeah. the copper price is down, but the iron ore price, I think, is all right, and coal's. Uh, also, Good. okay. Yeah. So, uh, so the um, materials index has basically flatlined for the past couple of months, uh, and is not. It has. So, if you look at the last, yeah, if you look at the last three months, completely agree. So, the it actually was elevated and, and has remained elevated. It's only just dropped below the banking index for the last three months. And I actually try and take a bit more of a longer term view. If you look over the last twelve months, it's up over eighteen and a half percent. The materials index whereas the banking index has only just crossed back into positive territory over that one-year period. So materials, and it should be the case that they have outperformed. We're in a growth market globally. That, that's, you, know, you can't dispute that despite you know, the possible issues around geopolitics and, and what we've just alluded to. It is still a growth market. You are seeing that and being told that by central bankers in the US, here in Australia, and also in Europe. Uh, but data shows you that it's a growth market and materials, therefore, should and have performed um, as they have. And if we do continue to see the iron ore price, and I completely agree here, holding relatively steady, so between 65 and 75 US a tonne, it will, again, just add that buffer in our market that we're not being completely controlled around like we have seen overseas from trade wars. So what do you think investors should be looking out for, apart from, obviously, uh, developments in trade? Yeah, let's put that sort of to one side. Right now, the most interesting sort of thing going on over the next sort of five to six weeks is is earnings seasons across the globe. So US earnings season is well and truly underway. Um, and so far, it's it's been pretty stellar. I mean, a lot of people highlight Netflix and what happened to their share price on Monday. But if you actually look at the underlying numbers being released on an earnings per share growth perspective, they're hitting and beating consensus. And consensus was for... ETS growth year on year of 20%. Now, it's still a very small sample, but the US is currently averaging about a 21.2% EPS growth year on year. So that is astoundingly strong. You can't deny that. Fundamentally, it's very positive. Explains why the NASDAQ's making another record all-time high because they're part of that. Uh, you also saw even really good numbers from, from the US banks that have done some big driving. So Morgan Stanley, case in point, Bank of America, case in point. And then you've got our earnings season that's coming up technically starts next Friday with GUD, which is a company not many people follow, but it's sort of the, the signal of the start of, of our earnings season. And looking at particularly what we just talked about with materials, the production reports that have been coming out over the last sort of 
week in a bit are really strong. They're at the upper end of their ranges. So short term, there are fundamental upside reasons that can actually support our market. And that, I think, is a really positive thing because there is a bit of doom of gloom and it has sort of come out of nowhere over the last sort of three months. And, and let's be honest, it has come from the White House and, and the White House disruption. But uh, underlying, the economics that we've seen over the last year are strong and they're now filtering through into the actuals that we're seeing from earnings. There have been a few earnings downgrades in Australia over the last few months, in the, what's called the confession season, but they're not that many and they haven't been that big. So, I mean, overall, the you know, the downgrades look look pretty good. So the Australian earnings season, you'd have to say, is is looking okay. Yeah, it is, and I would agree with you. And, and those that have downgraded have had structural reasons to do so. Um, the overall trend, as you just alluded to, is, is that things should be good. Uh, so, again, looking at the growth side of the market, things like materials, things like industrials, so... The one I think will be, you know, a bit of a beacon as always will be CSL. Um, they've got some very interesting things to report in terms of their, their structural growth in the US and, and, and Europe. Uh, what they've been reporting quarterly looks very, very strong and probably explains why they went to $200 uh, in the last week and a bit. Um, then you also have to look at, you know, the growth in the US in, in housing, despite what they released this week, which is a little bit disappointing, has been pretty good over the last half. So you're... U.S. exposed uh, building manufacturers here in this country, being people like James Hardy, being people like Boral, um, have also been fairly sort of sanguine in their release, which normally tends to mean that they're going to tell you something pretty, pretty good. Now, to talk about the week in economics, which has been a bit of a quiet week, actually, I'm joined now by Diana Messina, who is Senior Economist at AMP Capital. Well, Diana, it was a quiet week in Australia um, in economics this week, but um, we had uh, a testimony from Jay Powell, the new um, chairman of the Fed in America. What did he say? Well, the key things uh, that he mentioned was really this confirmation that the US economy is still firmly on track to record very strong growth this year, probably at around 3% or so, which is well above the US potential at 2%. So that Marcus received that confirmation that the hike for September from the Federal Reserve is still very much on track and December is very likely as well. Uh, Powell did note that we might, or that the US economy might not actually be at full employment just yet which I saw some commentators were saying looked a bit odd given that the unemployment rate now is well below the Fed's own forecast um, for where it would be at this time. But I suppose you need to look at broader indicators of the labour market, things like wages growth, which haven't picked up as much as expected. So that still clearly indicates that you have that spare capacity in the economy. Yeah, right. So uh, I suppose um, the confirmation that there'll be a September rate hike wasn't all that surprising and the markets didn't really react much to it. Uh, yeah, that's definitely true. Uh, I think that the confirmation uh, from Powell that the US economy is still growing well is was kind of the trigger that markets needed to continue upward momentum this week, particularly in the US. But you've also seen much um, stronger earnings uh, growth than expected from the banks this week, even though expectations were already for a pretty 
pretty good earnings season. Markets were expecting earnings to be up about 20% year on year, which is a very good outcome, but we've seen outperformance. Out so I, I, I think that that's the key reason why markets have gone higher this week. Yeah, right. In Australia, we had the Reserve Bank minutes. Um, they've uh, reinserted um, the idea that the next move is likely to be up, which they left out last month. Um, mm. How significant do you think that is? Well, I think that by them leaving out that comment last month, we did see a few commentators start to shift to the idea that perhaps the RBA might be hiking later than expected or perhaps even that the next move would be a cut. We're still of the opinion that you can't actually rule out a rate cut from the RBA. I mean, even though the RBA wants to think that it will be hiking next time around, I suppose that they don't they they themselves can't forecast what's exactly going to happen in the economy. And for us, the key risks around the housing market, uh, lower dwelling price growth and the impact that that has on a consumer that's already in a very weakened state uh, means that you can't rule out that possibility that we, that we may need to see a cut here. And there's a lot of pressure on the banks at the moment uh, through increased funding costs and uh, through them increasing some mortgage rates across the, across the spectrum. So we still think that the, the, that the RBA will be hiking in 2020, but uh, the risks we think are still towards a cut in the near term. Yeah, well, I mean, I, uh, when I read the minutes, the, the general impression you got was that the RBA is getting a bit worried. I mean, they, they, talked, they specifically talked about how vulnerable households are because of the high level of debt, and they also mentioned the trade tensions going on and uh, that that's a, a worry for global growth. So you sort of got this sense that they're worried um, while also saying that the next, next move is likely to be up. Yeah, that's that's a that's a that's a great summary of um, I guess the RBA's position at the moment. Australia, as a small open economy, is very much influenced by what happens in the global environment, and the trade tensions uh, globally will will not um, will not just impact the US and China, but obviously impact the global supply chain. And Australia is very much included in that because we don't know the ramifications of how. Uh, the supply chains will change between uh, the U.S. and China. So, I think that that's just a, that's just a big risk that the 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 RBA can't really value at this stage. Uh, and also, the concern that's going on with emerging markets is something that would be weighing on the Reserve Bank. We still think that there's a good chance you'll see some more policy stimulus coming out of China in the near term. We've already seen some easing of liquidity conditions there. But more is likely to happen because Chinese policymakers are trying to prop up growth at a time when they're also focusing on deleveraging in some sectors and some other kind of controls like around pollution and the environment, which will obviously pull down growth in some sectors. So if you see that policy stimulus coming from China, then I think that that would be a, a very big positive flow on in influence in, 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 into Australia. Members on my right will cease interjecting. The Leader of the House will cease interjecting. And now joining me to talk about the week in politics, here's Peter Van Onselen, contributing editor at The Australian and a political academic. Peter, uh, um, 
obviously the the news this week has been dominated by events in uh, Helsinki and in North Thailand, but there's been a couple of things going on which you've been talking about. Firstly, um, the uh, replacement of the Treasury Secretary John Fraser uh, with um, with uh, Scott Morrison's Chief of Staff Philip Gaitens. Well, what do you think of that? And how's that going to well, go? I do think Look, I do think it's a politicisation, and I don't say that uh, to be unfair to Gations because he does have a pedigree in terms of his bureaucratic background. Uh, He was appointed by an albeit Liberal government in New South Wales to their Treasury Secretary position, but going much further back than that when he was, before he was even Peter Costello's Chief of Staff, he was the Acting Deputy Secretary or one of the Acting Deputy Secretaries at the federal level, initially under Labor and then for a while under the coalition with the 96 change of government. So he has a pedigree there, don't get me wrong. The issue I have is the proximity of the political to the now. It wasn't that long ago that he was Scott Morrison's chief of staff, and it's the perception side of it rather than the reality. I'm certain that as an individual, he's more than capable of separating the two professionally. But in a in an optics perspective, I think it's a problem for the government, and that's really about the politics. I think the government think that it's a good appointment to put him in, but actually when it comes to the politicking of it, it just gives Labor an excuse to dismiss any Treasury criticism that might happen when it comes to their funding, for example, uh, or any of the like. Well, what does it tell you about the thinking in the coalition and the government? I mean, what, what does it tell you about their attitude? Well, it tells me that they're interested in having what they would see as a political ally in the Department of Treasury rather than somebody that at arm's length is seen as being highly robust without any political connections at all. And we know for years on both sides of politics that government departments have been infected by political appointments, and to some extent so has Treasury. But if you had to pick one department, uh, from my analysis, that has generally stood above that fray more than others, it would be Treasury. So it tells me that the government, as we get to the pointy end of the electoral cycle, with my EFO coming up, they like the idea of having an ally in there. It might also tell you that they were caught a little bit on the hop with John Fraser's departure um, because, of course, Phil Gation's already had an appointment that he'd just been made to, which he's pulling out of to take up this role. Yeah, and I suppose the other thing it tells you is they don't really care what anyone says or thinks about it. Well, that's true, and I think that's silly politicking because you know the, the biggest, if you like, opportunity that Labor could have would be to be able to cast doubt on any independent Treasury commentary which is negative about them and their policy settings. This gives them their get-out-of-jail card. So if the government don't care what people think in terms of the perception, if not the reality of the situation, well, more fool them, I think, politically. Speaking of Labor, interesting first paragraph on the commentary about them this week uh, from you. Decision by the Labor MPs that the Labor MPs need to weigh up is what is the lesser evil, suffering the inevitable transaction costs of rolling a leader or going into the next election with a leader who is a drag on the party vote? And obviously we're talking about um, Bill Shorten. So explain to us, um, well, you know, I mean, um, goodness me, another leadership change, really? Well, it's, un- it's unusual to be so negative. I think I might have said this further into the piece. It's unusual to be so negative about an opposition that has led on news poll for 36 consecutive polls. You would think that that would equate to riding high. But the latest one is 51-49 on the two-party vote. And a number of those leads over those 36 consecutive polls have been at the closer end of the spectrum compared to six or 12 months ago. So... The reason it's so negative is because of the personal numbers of Bill Shorten. Now, I'm not convinced, well, I'm certainly not convinced that Labor will 
well, Bill Shorten, I've got great respect for his internal political manoeuvring skills. So I can see him beating Anthony Albanese, whether that's in their best interests or not. But what I'm also not convinced by is whether, as you mentioned, those transaction costs of change are really worth it uh, for, for any side of politics. We've seen some pretty stark examples of just how how much the public has had a gutful for that. What I don't know, though, is whether that translates to opposition. Traditionally, oppositions can roll their leader on the eve of an election, and it's not a problem. I mean, Bob Hawke did it incredibly successfully ahead of 83, and it's happened countless other times. Latham would, of course, be the unsuccessful example. But... Uh, that is a real weighing up for them. You know, Bill Shorten's unpopular. He will personally be a drag on their vote, but he's not a bad strategist. However, if you're rolling, yes, the data tells us that Anthony Albanese is more popular, but does that last after a bloody coup? It doesn't always last after a bloody coup. It can force voters to shake their heads. So it, it's, a, it's an unenviable choice for a party that should be feeling pretty good because they've been in front for so long. But do you think that um, Bill Shorten's personal numbers could actually mean the difference between winning and losing the next next election and that Albanese would win it for them alternatively? It, it could. I certainly wouldn't rule that out. But what I think it's more likely to make the difference between is between them only winning as a minority government or, for example, with the slenderest of majorities versus perhaps being able to win in a wipeout. If, and there's a lot of ifs here, if the transaction cost of change can be avoided, and if Albanese's popularity that exists now were to continue in the leadership where you have much more scrutiny on you, if all of those things added up, I think that he would be in a position to take advantage of community angst with the government. However, uh, the Bill Shorten doesn't have that because you know he's a known quantity and he's an unpopular known quantity at that. I could see under Bill Shorten's leadership, despite angst with the government, there being enough angst with him as leader and possibly the opposition writ large that he struggles to get those seven or so seats that he needs to get a majority in his own right. We could be looking at another another case of 2010 all over again. Just finally, Peter, um, where do you think we now stand on the national energy guarantee? Well, that's yeah, that 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 is a tough one because uh, predictions in that space are, are really difficult. It looked for a while there like. Josh Frydenberg was managing to keep all the balls in the air, negotiate with all the parties and and therefore get something done. I'm now starting to see not just the breakouts that have occurred on his right flank, which have always been manageable. You know, the, the party room, Tony Abbott, the Nationals, that's always been manageable. It's the breakouts on his left flank from any state or territory or indeed federal labour that is the bigger risk to, to him getting this deal done because it, it's an all or nothing. He needs every single state and territory or else the whole deal collapses. You can't exclude any one of them. And the ACT is the hardest because not only are they an alliance government with the Greens, but then it's a Green that has carriage for this particular portfolio responsibility. Now, if there's not too many breakouts of dissent about the neg on the left flank, I can see the ACT falling into line because they're a small fish. But we're starting to see a bit more angst than that. And if I was Josh Frydenberg, I'd be worried about that. And we're now hearing... Uh, as recently as late this week, that federal Labor are starting to ask questions of their own about it. Surely the Greens are are suffering some remorse over their failure to pass Kevin Rudd's emissions trading scheme in 2009 (laughs) and uh, remember that, God. You would think so, and they should, but self-perception is not always at the top of the list of attributes of, of Greens, and I don't know that they are. I've asked them that many times in interviews if they are. It's, it's deep in the subconscious, or they're at least not willing to admit it if that's the case. But certainly from most of our perspectives, you know, 
letting the perfect be the enemy of the good is exactly what the Greens did way back then. And if they hadn't, we probably wouldn't be having these debilitating climate change wars now because we would have moved on like a lot of other parts of the world have. Happy birthday, Carlos Santana, 71 today. Song of the Wind is still my favourite guitar solo. (laughs) 